Welcome to All About Almodovar, an introduction to loving the films of Pedro Almodovar. I'm Ingo King, a critic at The Hollywood Reporter, a title I have in common with our guests this episode. But first, let me introduce my co-host, Slate podcast producer, Daniel Schrader. No, bad, terrible. <laughs> Come on. Hi, Ingo. <laughs> Friend of the show, Alan Shore, still does this thing where he does exactly that with podcast recordings. And then he says, like, these are little kisses in your ear. But I'm referencing the movie we just watched. Oh, okay. That's nice. All right. Do you not so, pay attention to the movies we no, watch? I- <laughs> you know, David, I got to say, just warning you, Ingu probably has watched this movie but doesn't know what it's about because every time we get into it, she's kind of lost. Like, I had to explain High Heels as we were watching High Heels together. I can tell she's already doing a shabby job, so <laughs> I'm waiting to step in. So with us today is one of my favorite critics, David Rooney, Aww. chief film critic at The Hollywood Reporter. How are you, David? I'm well, Ingu. Thank you. And you are one of my, my favorite critics, too. So it's, it's just a joy to be here and to see your face instead of just reading your bylines. This is a wonderful mutual masturbation. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> the best kind. So, David, what's your history with Pedro Almodovar movies? Well, I was living in London in the 80s, and I think the first encounter I had with Almodovar, as I I always get the accent wrong, it really should be Almodovar, but uh, I lived in Italy for 13 years, and the Italians all say Almodovar, so I have to sort of wean myself off that, which is hard. Anyway, I, my first encounter was Law of Desire, um, and it was in 87, released in London, and what a film. I mean, this was sort of before the whole wave of new queer cinema happened, and this film came along that was just so full of kind of transgressive humor and gay, torrid murder mystery, Antonio Banderas at his most beautiful. And who wouldn't want Antonio Banderas killing some third wheel of a triangle for you? And- <laughs> And the fabulous Carmen Maura as transgender Tina um, with the soul of a choir boy. And I was just instantly addicted to him. Uh, I wanted to to see everything. So I went back and saw the earlier films, which were slowly becoming available in England at that time. There was a great company, I think, called Metro Tartan that was doing all the Almodovar films. So I went back and and found Pepe Lucy Bond, the other girls, um, Matador, and one which is... You know, maybe one of his messiest films, but also one of my favorites, which is What Have I Done to Deserve This? And I think such a great Carmen Maura performance, such a heroic kind of beleaguered housewife. I love that she kills her husband in the kitchen with a ha- with a leg of ham. And, <laughs> and, and the whole idea of men being murdered in, in their kitchen, useless husbands being murdered in their kitchens is something that, of course, happens again in, in uh, Bolver in a different way. But... Um, you know, selling her 12-year-old son to a pedophile dentist. Well, and we talked about that in the last episode when we did Bad Education, and it's interesting to see how he, he, like, plays it so comedically in that movie as, like, LOL, I'm selling my child, and he's so in on it, and, like, everybody's down with it. It's comedy. That child is savvy. The child is the one, you you know, he's controlling the business transaction, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, I don't think there's another director in the world who could get away with that. Even John Waters would do it in a more outrageous way, maybe. But Almodovar does it with with, with soulfulness that I think 
underlies the the comedy in a in a beautiful way and um so you know from there women on the verge of a nervous breakdown happened and kind of he exploded all over the world that that movie of course is the encapsulation of everything that the movida was all about you know the release from franco and all of that kind of pent-up sexual and creative cultural energy that that just exploded and i think it explodes in such a fabulous way in that in that movie and then the the the, the three films after that this is where I kind of fall out on El Motovar. I find those three films, High Heels, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, and Kika, kind of transitional films where he was almost treading water and still doing his transgressive comedic thing, but not really evolving into the filmmaker that he was going to become. And um, the big transition for me was uh, The Flower of My Secret. And I like that film probably more than most people do. I love the, the turn into that heightened version of Cirque and melodrama. Uh, and that film was also one of the greatest experiences I've ever had at a premiere at a film festival because I saw it at the world premiere at the Velodrome in San Sebastian. Um, when I was living in Rome at the time, I'd moved from London to Rome in the meantime, and uh, they had the world premiere of Flower of My Secret in the Velodrome, which is, which is like an arena, and it was packed and the presentation of it was so flamboyant and Almodovarian, if we can use that as an adjective. And so everybody came out in black, starting with Joaquin Cortez, the fabulous flamenco dancer who did these amazing steps. And then all the women came out. Chus Lampreave, one of my favorites, who always plays the sort of crazy old biddies. And Volver, I think, is her second last film with Almodovar. But I just always loved her. And uh, Rossi de Palma, the Picasso-esque beauty, came out in this fabulous sheath. All, everyone wearing black. She came out in this sort of one-shouldered sheath dress with a split practically up to her armpit. And did a, <laughs> and did a turn. And it was a really quick turn. The dress flew out, but I swear she wasn't wearing underwear. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> sign in blood, but it very much looked like she wasn't wearing underwear. And the crowd went nuts. And then, of course, Marisa Paredes came out as the Grand Dame, you know, looking fantastic and, and uh, um, you know, such an, an iconic figure in Spanish cinema. And then Pedro came out all in white. So it was this very dramatic presentation. He came out in this white tux. And the audience just went nuts. So it was one of the most responsive audiences I've ever been with at a, at a festival. And it was just such a great experience. And I wrote... Was this, his hair white yet? His hair was, I think, a sort of silver, you know, salt and pepper. It was on the way. It wasn't as white as it is now. It wasn't the flossy cottontail bunny hair that it is now. But, um, you know, he was on the way. And uh, But he was just great. He gave such a fabulous speech and... Um, I love that movie. I wrote this pants-wetting, gushing review for Variety and got a beautiful postcard from Marisa Paredes when she was... Uh, uh, I knew her husband a little bit because he was the director of the Madrid Cinematheque. And um, they had my address in Rome and she sent me a postcard from New York. I think she might have been here for the premiere at the New York Film Festival because it was about around that time of year. I still have that postcard somewhere. And I've seen them over the years. I, I helped her up the stairs once at the Venice Film Festival, the Hotel de Bain, when she was shit-faced on margaritas. <laughs> uh. they're, they're fun people. And <laughs> Almodovar I met only once. I've never interviewed him. I only met him once in Rome, I think, at the premiere of Live Flesh through a mutual friend. And... Um, 
you know, he was friendly. He was talking to a million people. So it wasn't a great opportunity for conversation. But it was, you know, I just got this instant warmth and humor. And he looked fantastic. He was wearing, I mean, he was pretty chunky at the time. And he was rocking this amazing jacket that was kind of like your favorite crazy old auntie's sofa turned into a jacket. And then (laughs) it was before everyone was mixing prints, but he was wearing some very, very controversial pants with the jacket and it just everything worked he was just rocking the whole thing but you know i love live flesh i love that transition into the in the way he was starting to embrace genre then but then you know to go from that into the uh, incredible one-two punch of back-to-back stone cold masterpieces with all about my mother and talk to her bad education i also love and then you know there was that I find the, the films that followed slightly disappointing. Broken Embraces, Julieta, they're not my favorites. I'm so excited, just feels like a film by an Almodovar imitator. Um, it's just sort of one joke and a pretty great lip syncing scene to the Pointer Sisters, and that's about it. But um, I do like the Hitchcockian psychodrama that not many people like with Banderas, The Skin I Live In. Anyway, ju- just to wrap up the, my long-winded answer to your question, my, my experience of Almodovar, you know, I loved his films through his hi- entire career. Even his subpar films are pretty, pretty great in their, in their way. They're, they're better than a lot of people's best films. And I really loved Kika, I'll be honest. Yeah, I'm not a fan, but maybe I need to see it again. I saw it once and I was, I know that was the Victoria Abril period, right? Um, and I saw it once. I just was not that taken with it. I, I felt like he was still finding his way into the more mature filmmaker he became. Um, but Pain and Glory is just to me the perfect culmination of an entire career. I don't think there's a film that better encapsulates who a director is than that film. It's there's so much of him in there, the intimate confessional nature of it, the the way he deals with illness, with the isolation of the artistic process, uh, the the struggle of creativity um, and the, the, you know, the failed loves, the regrets of failed loves, but also the trip back to the village, the village of childhood, which is so important to his films. You know, that that La Mancha childhood in the in the village and the way he revisits that in Pain and Glory, I just found so beautiful, so moving. Well, today we're returning to the Pueblo and we're returning to La Mancha, Almodovar's birthplace in rural Spain. For the last of his four consecutive masterpieces during his remarkable run from the late 90s to the mid-2000s. After Talk to Her and The Woman on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, both of which we've covered on the pod, Volver might be Almodovar's best-known and most celebrated film. It made a bona fide star of Penelope Cruz, who shared the Best Actress Prize at Cannes with five of her co-stars, and she became the first Spanish actress to be nominated for an Oscar. And if you're wondering who robbed Cruz at the 2007 Academy Awards, it was actually a pretty stacked category that year, with Helen Mirren taking the prize for the Queen over both Cruz and unknown actress Meryl Streep for a little film called The Devil Wars Prada that was never heard from again. (laughs) As we'll discuss, Volver, meaning to return or go back, marks a homecoming for Almodovar, Cruz, and co-star Carmen Maura on a number of levels. And by the way, this is yet another Almodovar film that if you haven't seen it yet, you should watch Cold first, since we're definitely going to be discussing all the secrets that the characters are keeping from each other. So that's your spoiler warning. Daniel, what happens in Volver? Okay, well, 
At first glance, this seems like a simple story, but there are actually a bunch of different strands that come together through the stories these women tell. The film opens on Raimunda, played by Penelope Cruz, and her sister Sole, played by Lola Duenas, and Raimunda's daughter Paula, played by Johanna Cobo, visiting their family's pueblo in La Mancha. They clean off their parents' gravestones, check on their crazy old aunt, also named Paula, played by Chus Lampriave, who babbles about their dead mother's ghost. And they drop in on their neighbor Agostino, played by Blanca Portillo, before heading back to Madrid. The next day, while Raimunda is at work, her drunk deadbeat husband Paco attempts to rape her 14-year-old daughter Paula, claiming he's not really her father. She accidentally stabs and kills him. When Raimunda returns, she sets about covering up the crime, stuffing the body in a freezer at a restaurant she's watching for a neighbor and inadvertently ends up running for a while to feed a local film crew. While Raimunda is dealing with Paco's body, Aunt Paula dies, and Sole is forced to attend the funeral without her sister, unaware of the real reason Raimunda can't attend. Back at the Pueblo, Sole encounters the ghost of her mother Irene, played by Carmen Maura, and runs from it, driving back to Madrid. She then finds the ghost has hitched a ride in the trunk of her car, and isn't actually dead. Her mother has just been hiding ever since she burned down her house years earlier, and has been staying with her sister, Aunt Paula, to care for her in her final days. Agustina calls Raimunda from the hospital, confessing she has cancer, and asks Raimunda if she knows anything about Agustina's mother's whereabouts, who went missing the same day Raimunda's own parents supposedly died in a fire. After some farts, hair dye, and hiding under the bed, Raimunda and her mother reconnect at Sole's apartment and reveal the truths they've kept hidden for so many years. Raimunda reveals her father sexually abused her as a child and is the father of her daughter, Paula, and Irene confesses that a few years ago, she caught her husband in bed with Agostina's mother and set the house on fire with them in it, killing them both. After a 15-year separation, she and her daughter Raimunda are able to heal their relationship and move forward. During this reconciliation, we've also got Agostina on the TV going on a trashy talk show to reveal these secrets in exchange for a trip to a prestige cancer center. But she gives up the opportunity live on air and decides to die in peace in the Pueblo, where Irene is already waiting to care for her during her final days. So really light stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. <laughs> Definitely not a film that does not literally begin and end with death. I feel like David has like a fun first viewing experience story of this movie. Well, I don't know if it's so much a fun first viewing story. It's just that it was very significant. I was living in Rome, and this film, everybody talks about it and says, yeah, vintage Hollywood melodrama. But it's, it's, it is that. But there's much, much more of Italian melodrama. And, you know, it's, it's Anna Magnani in Visconti's Bellissima and uh, Sophia Loren in La Ciociara, two women by De Sica. But even more than two women, I think it's Sophia Loren in the comedies of De Sica. You know, she did so many great comedies with De Sica where she's, she's all about this incredible voluptuous figure with this cinched in waist, big, big, big bosom, big, big, big butt. And, um, you know, she's just sort of sashaying around and tossing off uh, lines like like it's nothing. And Penelope Cruz's performance seems so modeled on that. So it's channels all of that kind of Mediterranean voluptuousness. Yeah, even the fake butt she has to wear. Yes, the fake <laughs> butt is amazing. And we're, we're going to talk about the miles of cleavage because 
Please. You know, this this film is all <laughs> about the cleavage. But the Italian for the Italians, this film resonated in a big way. So seeing Volver in opening week in a crowded movie theater, you know, Almodovar had a huge following in, in Italy by this time. So seeing seeing that film at that time was was a big deal. And Seeing it again was just wonderful. I just I had forgotten how good it was. I'd forgotten how great Penelope Cruz was because we had seen her in so many Hollywood movies where, like many European actors, actresses even more so, she was they didn't know how to use her. They would sort of put her into these generic ethnic roles and kind of play up her national stereotypes and not really kind of draw on her nuances. And I think seeing her acting in her own language here in such a great part, such a meaty role, she's, you know, she's the linchpin of an ensemble. She's the star, but she's also very much a, a connected part of the, the you know, the fabulous t- connective tissue of these women, you know, the daughters and mothers and ghosts and, and friends and everything. And... I, I just love the way she holds this movie together. You know, she tosses off every line of dialogue as if it's nothing. She doesn't sort of get into Anna Magnani-esque hysteria, but she's got this f- passion and fire and anger in her that I just love. And uh, I think it's really one of her, maybe her best performance. I would say there is no doubt it is her best performance. I think... Better than I the Zoolander at- sequel, you think? Where <laughs> she played a swimsuit model? Oh. Well... <laughs> I think what I really love about this movie, like right at the very beginning, is that you go in and there's this brutal practicality to her. And basically the movie starts almost immediately when they get back to Madrid with the daughter, who I would say is like around 13, 14 years old, accidentally killing the man who she had grown up thinking was her father when he was going to rape her. And there is not like a trace of hesitation with Penelope Cruz's character, Raimunda. She just says like, okay, remember, she tells her daughter, like, remember that I did this and cleans up everything. And it's just so dead certain that this is the way that things are going to go. And I think that determination is part of what is so great about her performance in this movie. It was really great to see how calm she stayed, regardless of how often she said, I'm flipping out. (laughs) I was just going to add that um, Paco, the husband who was killed, is such a deadbeat layabout. You know, he's lost his job, probably not for the first time. He's just sitting at home watching soccer on TV and sucking down beers and doing nothing. While Penelope is, Raimunda is, is out cleaning at the airport, bussing tables at a restaurant or working in a kitchen at a restaurant. She's obviously doing multiple jobs. This is a woman who's on her feet all day on her fabulous wedge heels all day. And uh, I, I, I think that, the, you know, this, this movie is about you know, these all but invisible men in the movie are all causing pain to the women who love them. And it's about women banding together forming these natural communities that heal each other and offer each other comfort. And I love that, you know, the ultimate example of that, of course, is Raimondo with Paola, the daughter. But it carries through to so many levels of the film, these women helping each other through. And I love, as you say, how death is set up from the very beginning of the film, that incredible opening shot, that right to left tracking sequence across the graveyard with the beautiful blood red titles kind of woven in among the gravestones. 
And uh, it's such a beautiful image of those women cleaning the gravestones in the village and the, the, the way he so swiftly establishes that death and superstition is a part of the culture of this place. These women who outlive the men, you know, this whole village in which the women outlive the men, they're cleaning gravestones so lovingly. And Agostina, who's a fabulous character, the neighbor of, of uh, Raimonda and Sole's Aunt Paola, um, goes every day to clean her own gra- gravestone. And, you know, you would think, what a morbid thing to be doing. But she's so cheerful and she says, you know, it relaxes me. <laughs> and, uh, and Raimonda, explaining this to her daughter Paola, says, you know, there's a gra- there, it, these gravestones are like second homes to these women. And the idea of a gravestone being a second home, death being a second home, is such a beautiful spiritual idea, so connected with him, with Almodovar, and where he comes from, and the superstitions of his place of birth. I, I, I love that opening. I think it's the perfect opening. The other thing I really, really love about that opening is that I think one of the reasons why Agustina is cleaning her own grave is that she needs a way to mourn her mother who disappeared almost four years ago and she has no way of doing that because as far as she knows her mother has completely disappeared into thin air and so cleaning her own grave is one way of having a grave for her mother Um, but I think the other thing that I find really beautiful about this grave cleaning scene that opens the movie that like I think becomes much clearer toward the end of the movie is that you have these women in the village who are constantly thinking about their own death and I think that like initially you think oh how morbid I think that's sort of like the natural uh, reaction but then you realize that when these women, particularly Irene, have constantly in the back of their minds the fact that everyone else around her is going to die, it makes the idea of caring for your neighbor so much more natural because hopefully the case will be that you take care of them and then someone will take care of you. And everyone is sort of like thinking about death and decline eventually. Hmm. I think... Um yeah, what you're both saying makes makes a lot of sense. I I, I love you know when, what Dan said about Penelope and her calm, her sense of calm. For me, the ultimate moment of that is when the restaurant owner knocks at her door. She's busy mopping up huge quantities of blood. <laughs> she has blood on her neck. I love the way she tosses that off. He said, "Did you hurt yourself?" She's got a great swatch of her husband, a dead husband's blood on her neck, and she says, "You know, cosa de mujer, you know, women's troubles." It's such a great joke, but the way she tosses it off is pure Sophia Lauren. If you look at Sophia Lauren in those Vittoria De Sica comedies like Gold of Naples, and you know that that is her. Everything is just tossed off with this sort of dismissive, petulant kind of attitude, and. She's unfazed by the fact she's been mopping up her dead husband's blood. And uh, the other thing I'd say about the gravestone is the way the red of those titles, that incredible fire, fire engine red titles, they, cut, they weave through the gravestones and it establishes the key color motif of the film. You know, the, the red cardigan, there's the red in Paula's shirt when she uh, killed her father. There, Wait, does you know, Pedro like red? <laughs> That, you know, uh, Sole drives a red station wagon. There's a great shot of Penelope at the airport where she's cleaning next to a giant red fire hose. 
container. There's red all the way through. Of course, the freezer where the husband's body is stashed is is red. You know, red is such a dominant motif in the film. And I would also just throw in that the plot of this film, just to connect it back, is is the plot of the Marisa Paredes character's unsold novel in Flower of My Secret that she doesn't manage to get published and it ends up being stolen and turned into a screenplay called The Freezer is a variation on the the plot of Volver. Uh, so I love all that connectivity between different films among different films of, of Almodovar. And I love sort of like the co-optation of red from romantic passion to like familial passion almost. Yeah. I mean, the red, when the red when the paper towels are soaking up the blood on the floor, she just puts those crisp white paper towels down and we just see the blood pool out in them. What a shot. The other thing I wanted to mention about the opening is that we're in La Mancha and it's Wendy. And we see this beautiful shot of windmills at one point And like, it's all about the wind that drives you crazy and how there's all of these like women who just l- live there and have possibly gone crazy and see ghosts and tell stories about things that like go bump in the night almost that maybe are there maybe there's more truth to them than they realize or are willing to admit so true the the, the superstition of the east wind driving women crazy it, the, the fact is that all these women accept their craziness they live with it and they cope with it and like Raimonda Sol, Sole says she's been crazy since she was a kid and um but you know, she she owns it and and she manages, she copes, you know, she she sort of takes over the running of a restaurant like that, you know, without <laughs> any thought. And she suddenly got the, you know, the local prostitute and another neighbor. Everybody's helping out. You know, it's just this incredible, efficient community of women just kind of just pulling it together and making it work and getting on with their lives. I will say I when we first watched this movie together, it, Ingu and I had watched this, I think, as our second Almodovar movie. I watched All About My Mother, and then I watched this one. And I didn't know who Carmen Maura was at this point, because I I hadn't known about her filmography or her connection to Almodovar. And so I, I didn't even know how significant this was. I just thought, oh, she's just a great actress who plays the grandma. And it's really exciting to see her in this role now after knowing all of the history with her and Almodovar and her significance to him and then subsequent fallout, etc. And of course, it does feel like there are certain times when he's getting back at her in the things that he makes her do, like sit in the trunk of a car. But um, Or that terrible wig. And of course, that terrible wig. But like, it's so beautiful to see kind of her as the matriarch still of this Almodovarian female universe. She was his first muse. And I think there's something very moving about that. It's also something about the way she slots into the more farcical elements of the com- the comedy. Like when her granddaughter, Paula, meets her for the first time and she slides out from under the bed as if she's on a little thing on wheels and just, I'm here, uh, you know, with this goofy <laughs> look on her face. I mean, she's, she's a queen. She's, she's an absolute queen. I mean, she started in the theater, and I think that's where she and Almodovar met. And it was obviously an incredible friendship. And I think it was heartbreaking that they had a falling out after, after or during Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. And they didn't speak for a long time. And that she came back to do this film. The one thing she's come back and done with him since, after 18 years... I think there's something really moving about that and the the role that she plays in the film, the role that she's played in his life, 
I think that the the meeting of the two is is very poignant for anyone who has loved her and loved her on screen and loved his films. You might say it's a return. It's a return. What I wanted to bring up, and of course, I am speaking as a like clueless person in Almodo- like Almodovar's biography and having not seen Pain and Glory or anything like that, but... I do think it's really interesting the uh, progression here of the four films that kind of came on the wake of his mother's death in 1999, which is, I mean, you have All About My Mother, and then, which is, but isn't All About My Mother in a way. And then um, you have Talk to Her and Bad Education, which are so deeply personal to him. And then it feels like this is a movie where he's working through a lot of the like actual feelings about his mother and loss and the like female communities that she possibly had or was a part of that he never even knew about. And just kind of like, it did feel like a love letter in some way to all of these women. Yeah, actually, Almodovar has said that he's never felt closer to his mother than when he was shooting this movie. And it was such a personal project that he even brought in his own sisters as consultants for both like the dialogue and even the way that they were cooking in the kitchen. And in many ways, this is a tribute to the aged neighbors who tended to his own mother when he himself could not be there, the guilt over which is a major theme in Pain and Glory, as we'll see next week. Oh, Dan! preview. I mean, when you see Pain and Glory, <laughs> if you think the relationship with the mother is explored in a moving way here, wait till you get to Pain and Glory. You're going to be a sniveling wreck. <laughs> I was honestly like about to start crying when I was just writing the summary of the end of this movie earlier today, because mm. like it is just so heart-wrenchingly beautiful in a way that f- is hopeful. And I hadn't felt hope like that in a few of his past films. Yeah, I mean, listen, the fact that the Carmen Maurer character is both a ghost and a flesh and blood person, that she is the angel of death, but she's also the caretaker. She's, and she is, you know, preparing to guide Agostina toward her death, cancer. I think it's incredibly beautiful and poignant. And there's no, you know, it's absolutely clear that Almodovar is, is paying loving tribute to the women who raised him, to the women who were around around him when he was he was growing up, just the the way these women are so tactile with one another, whether they're cooking, whether they're, they're always touching, they're all, those kisses, those big smoochy kisses when they, yeah, they're so loud, they're so loud and wet and messy, and and the 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 kisses when all the villagers are around Sole when she comes in to grieve her aunt Paula and the the body is laid out in the coffin those kisses are almost violent he shoots them from overhead and those women are moving in on her like like locusts or something and they they're just like and and you know the kisses are very noisy and uh, the hugs are, are just grab everyone is grabbing at her and it is it is almost violent it's 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 love pushed toward violence and i think there's something really incredibly beautiful and moving about that um i think related to this depiction of the Pueblo is actually the windmills that Daniel mentioned that I think is actually very important because obviously like the most famous image that we have of La Mancha is those tilting windmills that Mm -hmm. Don Quixote was hurling at. And in this case, it's 
obviously those windmills are no more. It's all electronic uh, wind power. Wind farms. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, even though technology has changed so much of the village hasn't, so much of the village remains this really supportive environment where women are still helping women. And I think that just adds like an extra layer of beauty to this movie. Yeah. I would also add that Aunt Paula is such a great character, the one played by Chus Lampreave, who, you know, sadly has only a couple of brief scenes at the beginning. But I love that Aunt Paula is clearly bonkers, but... You know, she's either crazy with dementia or she's crazy with the east wind. It really doesn't matter, but she's crazy. And the (laughs) the way she looks at them through these giant glasses, optical glasses, which are which are like the bottom of Coke bottles that really distort her eyes. So she has these crazy big eyes and there's all this incredible cooking that's happening every day and all these Tupperware containers full of funnel cakes and all kinds of things that they're taking away. There's no way this crazy woman is making them. So she's this woman living with a ghost and she and she obviously has not stopped to think whether her sister is real or a ghost. It kind of doesn't matter to her. So all of that kind of borderline between sanity and you know, like controlled chaos or lucidity, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a magical mix. I can't believe we've gone this far and we haven't talked about Penelope Cruz's tango. That song. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and the way that she's, you know, slowed down, kind of flamenco treatment. I mean, it's a bad bit of lip syncing. I'll, I'll say yeah, that. Yeah, I agree. But I love that it's a bad bit it's of lip It's still syncing. moving, though. Right? And also, but, it, but the, 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 the artificiality of it is so much a part of the film. You know, artifice is a part of this film and a, a part of all of his films. There's, there's such a studied aspect to it. And I, I feel like this was the period where his craft was catching up with his content, the soulfulness of his, his content. So, you know, the, the command, the visual command of the camera the tonal command of the music, that that incredibly rich Alberto Iglesias score, which goes from lush melodrama to really kind of high intrigue Hitchcock. Uh, it's 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 really great the, the the tonal command with the music, but 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 you know the the way he uses that that scene with Penelope singing the, with the guitarists at the at the rap party for the film, and. Carmen Maurer, who has not yet re-encountered her daughter after years and years of um, of uh, separation. Estrangement. Estrangement. Thank you. The word I'm looking for. You know, in the same way Carmen Maurer and Pedro had their estrangement. So she's in the car listening to this song that she taught her daughter as a child and weeping on the back seat of the car. It's, what a scene. I mean, talk about rips your heart out. Yeah. A song that even features the title of the movie. Yes. Volver. Um, <laughs> I think we should talk about the different relationships of mother and daughter in this film because Raimunda's and Paula's is so different from Irene's and either of her daughters, really. Uh, The whole reason that Raimunda has such a horrible relationship with her mother is because she never told her mother that her father was raping her and her so that ruined their relationship and she like has never been able to recover from it until just until the movie happens and that the only reason that she even goes back to reconcile with her mother after finding out that she's still alive is because her daughter says we can go back now like what's stopping you from returning right now as soon as they stormed out of Sole's apartment Paula's just like you can go back now and talk to her. And it's just this like moment of the daughter being the most sensible one so often. 
because she's a force of accountability. But also, I think Paula is the person who gives Raimunda her softness, right? Like Raimunda is kind of mean to her sister. She doesn't have the best relationship, as you've said, with her mother. And the only person that Raimunda is willing to soften herself around is her daughter. So I think when her daughter makes these bridge-connecting suggestions, I think Raimunda is going to take those suggestions and might not take them if they came from anyone else. And that she's willing to do the thing, she is willing to push her mother to do the things that her mother wanted to do when she was younger, but never felt able to herself. And so like what? talk to her mother and tell the truth. And that like this is, she is kind of representing like what she could have been, what her life, her relationship with her mother could have been. And I think we get another example of that with the tango, where one of Raimunda's main motivations for doing the tango in the first place is because she says her daughter has never heard her sing. And so that's another thing that she wants to rectify. This movie is full of suggestions, mostly by Irene, about how if you love somebody, you have to show that person your love. And Raimunda is not willing to do that with anyone, but she sure as hell is going to show Paula how much she loves her. I, uh, you mentioned before that um, this film was maybe the most explicit response to the loss of his mother, but I do feel like the transition into this kind of heightened comedic melodrama that, that became Almodovar's signature from, say, Flower of My Secret onwards, I think was driven by a lot of, I would imagine was driven by a lot of personal loss. I mean, I used to talk often to young Italian filmmakers about their first features, and they were so often little insular features about nothing. You know, they were about, oh my God, it's so difficult transitioning from adolescence to adulthood and with nothing to say. And I would always say, you know, look at, look at a filmmaker like Almodovar, where everything about his work is about the life experience. You know, go out, fall in love with some inappropriate asshole, get your heart broken, get a terrible job that is, a, that is just soul-destroying and leave. You know, travel a little bit, get outside your own culture, get outside your own home. You know, all of that. And I would say, you know, look at these films. And, and I think what happened with Almodovar in that incredible flourishing period where All About My Mother and Talk to Her and Volver, all these films started happening, was that he did have his heart broken. I think he probably was in a bad relationship that ended and he really got hurt by it. And, and that is played out also in Pain and Glory. And, and you know, this is a, this is, there's something really raw and emotional in his films. As playful as they are, as much as there's an element of tragicomedy, there is, there, there is this incredibly raw feeling. And I, I think that's there in Volver all the way through, you know, in all of the relationships. Um, just the tenderness that's there uh, among all of the women. And I love the way... You know, Penelope Cruz is kind of flabbergasted when her mother turns up, but then she's like, okay. And she spills her guts and says why she was angry. The mother seeks atonement by saying, yes, I was blind to it. I should have been more attentive. I should have seen what was happening. And there is this wonderful reconciliation outdoors in the night. And it, it takes the film to a beautiful place that I think then continues to resonate through the end. This, this family of women has been brought back together and then Carmen Maura is going to accompany Agostina to a gentle death. It's very beautiful. 
Speaking of Agustina, uh, Ingu, as a TV critic, how did it make you feel that Pedro was basically saying, fuck TV, it's trash? <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like as much as he loves to parody bad daytime television, um, he seems to be watching a lot of it, so... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Pedro is a Real Housewives fan, no question, but... Um, I, it's it's funny how critical he is of the of TV, even though it's clear how much he enjoys it or is aware of like how much his mother enjoyed watching it and things like that. Like there's a line early in the film where Agustina says, "If my mother were alive, she'd be around because she would love to be on TV. She's crazy." And um, then like her sister is dying to get on TV and is like desperate to like do some sort of television, even like tries to reconnect with Raymunda. We never meet the sister, but like she's off screen, but like tries to reconnect with Raymunda so that they can go on TV together because she and Raymunda did music together. And then like Augustina eventually ends up on television herself. So, yeah. But I think what's notable about this little snippet of TV that we see where, like, Agustina basically trades in her dignity for a chance at getting cancer treatment in Houston. Uh, what I found notable about that is that daytime television is also, like, a vector for women's storytelling, right? Like, it's a female audience. It's intended to be, like, very hyper-emotional. And so, to me, watching that scene... I mean, like, I was joking earlier mostly about, like, Pedro basically trashing the thing that he loves. But I think Almodovar is showing that there's different ways of telling women's stories. And so, like, he's doing one mode that, like, I think feels really real in a way, despite all of these, like, heightened melodramatic situations. And then you have this, like, other extremely different, much more exploitative mode of women's storytelling where it's sort of gossipy and it's destructive. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I guess in that way, if we're talking about secrets and divulgences, this is a way of divulging women's secrets, but it's in a way that, like, feels really gross and icky. And is completely, like disregarding the protection that telling story like that not telling stories gives to me that's the only part of the movie that i find a little bit clunky and obvious um it's not my favorite although i'm grateful for every single moment agostina is on screen because i just love her as a character i love the actress playing her but um yeah it sort of just feels thrown in there and the, the kind of easy jokes of give her a hand she has cancer you know it it, it is very much that kind of incredibly silly Euro trash TV. And there was so much of it in that period, but it just felt to me like a, a little easy. I, I just, I wanted to get back to the scenes with the women in the village, the, the women together. And so when you, you get Agostina suddenly thrust into this completely alien environment of a TV studio, it, uh, it took me out of the film a little bit more than I wanted, but, but you know, one last thing. Can we talk about the humor for a second? Because this would be unwatchable without the comedy in it. And I would not want, I'd like, I would not feel a joy about putting it on the way that I do now and the way that I do with all of his films. And that, like, the substance wouldn't be there if it didn't, like, the, his depth of feeling wouldn't work without the depth of comedy as well. And, um, I, and I, th I think that's apparent from, like, the way that Raimunda senses that her mom is around is because she smells her farts. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's so funny. And it, it, I'm reminded of Talk to Her because so much of the comedy in Talk to Her was about, like, body humor and people talking about shit. And I, I love that he's, like, this gay fancy man making comedy about poop. It's it, fantastic. Um, There's such an earthiness to his films. And I think the whole idea of this mother who was known for her chronic farting and that she, she it was always obvious <laughs> that it was her because they were identifiable by smell, but also by the fact that she was the first to laugh. Uh, and give herself away and that she's she's snickering away under the bed in hiding while all this is being discussed I think it's just a, a delightful film it's kind of like a matching scene her laughing under the bed about them discussing her thoughts and then her on the back seat of the car weeping while her daughter sings the tango song they're kind of beautiful counterpart scenes um, well, and that like farting is something that is certainly seen as shameful and is like embarrassing. And yet it's this thing that they're laughing about and that so much of their difficulty of communication is because of shame. Finding the way to laugh about the dumb thing is the way to kind of bring us together and pierce that difficult pain. You talk about you talk about the way he kind of incorporates the low humor of farts into this film, and it becomes a poignant moment about the, the history of the family and their, their love for the mother, their embrace of the mother. Um, the other thing that he does here is basically create a visual caricature out of Penelope Cruz. I mean, she is Sophia Lawrence slash Claudia Cardinale slash Gina Lola Brigida slash every other vavavum Mediterranean actress of a certain vintage. She's got the sort of the big pile up of hair, which of course was then carried on by Amy Winehouse and other people. She's got the boot polish, eye makeup. And yet she's very, very real. And she's in on the joke of her boobage. You know, it's, it's all about that cleavage. Everything she wears, she goes out to clean and she's wearing these things that are basically little, almost like little lace teddies, these tops. They're kind of like what Madonna was wearing, but she's she is this hardworking housewife holding down multiple jobs, dressed in these incredible blah boom outfits. You know, the scene where she's getting ready for the rap party that the crew is holding downstairs at the restaurant, she's in this wonderful black slip, which is, you know, the same black slip that Sophia wears in just about every Vittorio De Sica comedy at one point or other. And I think where Almodovar gives it away and winks at us and tells us, yes, you should be in on this joke. And yes, we're not exploiting this. We're celebrating it. We're not sexualizing it. We're just, we're, we're finding the, the, the beauty in it. Is that incredible overhead shot when Penelope is washing the dishes. She's washing that very Hitchcockian knife that is going to be the murder weapon that kills her deadbeat husband in a, in a scene or two from then. And the camera is above her with a perfect view of this massive cleavage. And I love that Almodovar at the, at the press conference in Cannes, where I, I actually, um, the, the film, uh, I think saw the film first time at Cannes and then in Italy. But um, the press conference in Cannes, he, uh, someone asked him about the amount of time spent on Penelope Cruz's boobs in this film. And he said, yeah, I'm a gay man. I love women's, women's breasts. And he was completely <laughs> unapologetic about it. But uh, I do think that the, the celebration of her curves in this film, it's just all part of her being this incredible carnal maternal presence. And I love the fact that Carmen Maura, her own mother, looks at her after their years of estrangement and says, were you always this bit? Did you always have this much chest? You know, did you have something done? Did you, did you have it surgically enhanced? And she says, oh, what a suggestion. I think part of what is ironically really great about those big boobs is that Almodovar sort of 
changes the meaning of what big breasts are. I think so often, especially in cinema, we associate them with a kind of like helplessness or incompetence or a bimbohood. And Almodovar really loves bimbos. And so what he does is he makes her into this hyper-competent domestic goddess where she can do anything a man can do. You know, she becomes the breadwinner. She starts her own business to support her kid. And she can do everything a woman can do. She can literally do it all. I think domestic goddess is the perfect way to put it. I saw it from somewhere else. Well, Nigella, <laughs> Nigella Lawson is, is, you know, it was the perpetuation mm-hmm. of the domestic goddess. Every little cashmere cardigan she had carefully unbuttoned down to, to mid-chest area to show that the fabulous milky white cleavage. You know, I think that she was very conscious of that. And, and Penelope is really the embodiment of it in this film. So we talked before about Penelope Cruz's fake butt in this movie. Almodovar, in some interview, had said that Dustin Hoffman's butt in Tootsie was the inspiration for Penelope Cruz's butt. (laughs) And then somehow this, like, rumor avalanched. And so then it became, there was this, like, weird random rumor that Penelope Cruz herself had to address in an interview where she was asked, like, is the butt that you're wearing Dustin Hoffman's actual butt in Tootsie? (laughs) And she was like, no, this was, like, all a joke. And you guys, like, really took this out of proportion. But, I mean, like, she thought it was funny. I mean, who's the butt of the joke there? Oh, no. (laughs) Take that out. (laughs) Now we've reached our closing segment in which we rank the Almodovar movies that we have discussed so far, which are All About My Mother, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Law of Desire, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, Talk to Her, Bad Education, and Volver. I'll go first, and then Daniel, and then David. All right, so I think, again... All About My Mother is my favorite. And then Talk to Her. And then The Woman on the Verge. And then it gets hard. I'm going to say Bad Education and then Volver. And then Law of Desire, Time Me Up, Time Me Down. I feel like this is like pretty uncontroversial. Yeah, I think mine is a bit different from yours because Talk to Her is the top one for me. Uh, followed by Women on the Verge. And then uh, All About My Mother. Though... <sighs> Part of actually, and granted, I think part of this is that like I haven't seen all about my mother since we started this project, and it was my first one, and I feel like I need to watch it again to even really like get what I'd never got before. But I kind of want to put Volver above it, but I think that's wrong. Um, yeah, it's so wrong. <laughs> rude. so I'll go with um, all about my mother, Volver, all about my mother, bad education, Volver, law of desire, and then tie me up, tie me down, which for all that Antonio Banderas looks hot as shit with that, like every, everything in that film, it's just makes your skin crawl. Um, my ranking, I'm going to cheat. And just the caveat here that even though you haven't discussed it, that pain and glory would absolutely be number one, because I think it's one of the best films of the past decade for me. Uh, it, it is, as I said, the, you know, everything, every strand, every thread of his career comes to beautiful fruition in that film in such a moving way. I found that film just wrecked me. My number one of the films you've talked about would be all about my mother and uh, followed closely by talk to her law of desire mm. at number three, because it is my, was my introduction to him. And, you know, 
uh, we were starved for great queer films back then. That there weren't, you know, this was before new queer cinema. It was before all of that, and there was something about the liberation of the way he he depicted the lives of gay men, trans women. You know, the moment when it's a terribly hot night in in Madrid and Carmen Maura just gets out in this skin tight dress and turns on the fire hydrant and soaks herself just like kids in the Bronx I mean I that was the greatest moment and you know that film is so full of them I, I love that film to death number four I probably a few days ago would have said bad education maybe of these films but I, I'm going to bump up Volver and put it at number four because I really really found it so rewarding to revisit this film to to go back to return uh, like the title says. Which I find interesting because Bad Education to me is, uh, to me at least, and I said this on our last recording, is like his redo of Law of Desire. It's like his better version of Law of Desire. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I just find that interesting. And Volver, Volver is also, in a way, his his redo, his better version of What Have I Done to Deserve This, which is another film that would really be in my tops of the ranking here. It would be somewhere in the top five or six. I mean, I love that film. I love its messiness and its rough edges and its rawness. And I, I love Carmen Maurer's performance. And Chus Lampreave, again, as her crazy aunt or grandma or mother or whatever she is. Yeah, she's the playing the mom. She's playing the grandma of the the kid that gets adopted. Yeah. And isn't the lizards called money because she's obsessed with money? <laughs> I love that she just like keeps a lizard in a box. She just becomes, uh, yeah. what a great character. There's <laughs> it's so much greatness in that film. Uh, but uh, after Volver, I guess Women on the Verge. Wow. I think Women on the Verge is maybe a film that has aged less well than some of the others. I think that it... Its dominant kookiness, I think, makes it age maybe perhaps a little more than the others. I still love it. I love the idea of her knocking out a room full of people with gazpacho laced with, with sleeping pills. But uh, And I love every moment of Rossi De Palma in that film. It's so great. But uh, And Julieta Serrano, ugh, like when she's like, yes, take, me, so take me back to the, uh, to the hospital. I'm, I live there. <laughs> I love and, her. Carmen Maurer's character, Peppa, just just this, the way she's so sick of being good and boring. And just, I want to be badass, you know? I want to go fuck up my life and everybody else's. I, I loved all that. Um, and bad education. I, you know, bad education, women on the verge are kind of interchangeable there. I know this is the longest-winded ranking you've ever heard. Love it. I'm sorry. And Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down would be a distant last in that. I, it's, it's one of his films that I think does not really – uh, deliver much. But, you know, if we were including everything, as I said, women, uh, what have I done to deserve this would definitely be in there for me. Flower of My Secret would be in there for me because I just think it's a big turning point for him. And I, I love that film. I love I love Douglas Sirk. So any film where you're shooting everybody practically all the time in mirrors or through filigreed lacework uh, metal and uh, through elevator doors, you know, every, everything is sort of seen at a distance, refracted through some other image. I, I, I love that movie. Well, that's it for this week. On the next episode, which will be the last of our season, though we do have a couple of bonus episodes already in the works, we will discuss the film that in many ways, uh, as David has argued over and over, Almodovar has spent his four-decade-long career building toward. And we will discuss it with the only person who has ever accused me of not loving Pedro Almodovar enough. Please join us for 2019's Pain and Glory. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to send us, please email us at allaboutalmodovar at gmail.com. David, thank you so much for joining us and providing your wonderful insights. 
Thank you. Thank you both, guys. It's really been fun. I love being here talking about the, about one of my favorite filmmakers. Really a joy. Truly. This is Ingu King. This is Daniel Schrader. And David Rooney. Asalamanta. Is that the one where Victoria Abril turned up at Cannes with the dress with the amazing ass cleavage? She had a sort of a backless dress with a very low scoop and, a, and about a good inch and a half, two inches of ass cleavage. Uh, I think this is a thing that we will be ha- we will have to look up because not everyone is as a, a big can head as you are. And what you're also trying to say, Ingo, in your sneaky way is every, not everybody is as old as you, you old bastard. Listen, if I could have gone to the Cannes Film Festival in 1987, I would have loved to, but I was three years old. <laughs> I was not born yet. <laughs>